Welcome to PwC's IFRS Talks, your source for all things IFRS. I'm your host, Laura Kennedy, and for this episode, I have the pleasure of being joined by Marie Kling and Netta Mikula, two of our leaders from PwC's Global Corporate Reporting Team. And they're going to be sharing with us what's in store for 2024 on the IASB's standard setting agenda. So we have a very international podcast for you today. Uh, we've got Marie, who is joining us from New Jersey. Hi, Marie, and welcome back to IFRS Talks. Thanks, Sarah. And we also have Netta, who is joining IFRS Talks for the first time, and she is joining us from Helsinki. So hi, Netta, and welcome. Hi, Laura. It's an honor to be here today. Fantastic. And as always, I'm joining from a very rainy London. Okay, so thank you both for joining us today to talk about what's in store for 2024. So what do we mean by that? What we're thinking to cover in this episode is what IFRS accounting standards and amendments are we expecting to see coming out during 2024? And we're also going to give you a high level overview of the consultations that we're also expecting to see for people that might want to get involved in those consultations. So starting first then with new IFRS standards, 2024 is actually quite an exciting year because it's been a really long time since we've had a full new IFRS accounting standard. It was IFRS 17, which was back in 2017, and that was for insurance contracts. So even though I cared about it a lot, not everybody did. So it might have been even longer since anyone else has had an IFRS standard that they've been looking at brand new. Uh, But 2024, we have two coming down the pipeline. We have IFRS 18, and we're also expecting an IFRS 19. So Netta, starting with IFRS 18, can you share with us what that's going to be about? Well, thanks, Laura. Yes, it is exciting news, isn't it? So IFRS 18 is the new standard that will cover presentation and disclosure in financial statements. It will actually replace IS1, and it was developed to improve the reporting of financial information of all entities that apply IFRS accounting standards. The standard aims to improve the information that investors receive with the focus on the statement of profit or loss, seeking for greater comparability, transparency, and also usefulness of the information received by all users of financial statements. Thanks, Netta. So I guess the first question that always comes to my mind is, we already have IS1 on presentation that everybody's familiar with. How is IFRS 18 different to IS1? This is a very good question. So while IFRS 18 will actually keep some of the content in IS1 almost unchanged, it will introduce significant changes mainly in three areas, which I will summarize to you, Laura, here. The first one is categories and new required subtotals in the statement of profit or loss. So IFRS 18 will include guidance for the structure of the statement of profit or loss, which will be made up of different categories, which will be operating, investing, and financing. And also some specific subtotals will be required. The most important subtotal will be operating profit, which will help users of financial statements to have a common point to start their analysis and enhance comparability between different entities. The second area 
relates to disclosures about management-defined performance measures, or MPMs. Companies will now be required to provide information on certain non-GAAP measures in one single note within their financial statements. Entities generally disclose, as we all know, non-GAAP measures in their public communications and investor presentations, and users find this information very informative and valuable. But simultaneously, there is also concerns on how this information reconciles with the financial statements and how these measures are defined. In other words, what each measure is composed of and what does it exclude? These new requirements will actually fill the gap for a subset of performance measures, those related to subtotals of income and expenses, such as adjusted operating profit or, for example, adjusted debt profit. Thirdly, there will be new guidance on aggregation and disaggregation. Entities need to group their financial information in order to comply with presentation and disclosure requirements. Investors want to receive material information, but at the same time, enough detailed information that allows them to understand the financial statements. IFRS 18 will introduce enhanced requirements for grouping information including a requirement to present financial information in one of the primary financial statements and also to disclose information in the notes. I hope that's helpful. Thanks, Netta. That was a great summary. And maybe then on IFRS 18, the last thing I'd ask you would be more of the practical question. When is it we're actually expecting to see that come out and also when are companies going to be required to comply with it? Well, this is very important. We actually expect the new standard to be issued in April 2024 and the effective date to be January 1, 2027. Retrospective application will be required, which means that the 2026 information, including interim reports, should be prepared using the new requirements of IFRS 18. And I have to say, Laura, while this may seem a long way off, IFRS 18 might require significant changes to systems and reporting processes, parts of accounts, mappings, disclosures, reconciliations, management reporting, and investor communications, to name a few of the areas that might be impacted or the effort should not be underestimated. In my view, entities should start thinking about the operational challenges of implementing this new standard as soon as possible after it is published followed by an action plan for the adoption of the standard. And maybe lastly, I would like to say that people should watch this space. There is plenty more guidance to come once IFRS 18 is issued. And I think we might have some special podcasts also with spot-on content to follow. Thanks, Netta. I think you might be right there about the future podcast, but let's see. Okay, so that was fantastic on IFRS 18. Moving on next then, there is also IFRS 19, which might people might be less familiar with. So Netta, what's coming as IFRS 19? I agree with you, Laura. I don't think people are as aware about IFRS 19 as they might be about IFRS 18. So let me give you a short summary. IFRS 19 is called Subsidiaries Without Public Accountability, Disclosures. This is a new standard setting out reduced disclosures instead of the full disclosure requirements across other IFRS accounting standards. IFRS 19 has been issued in response to preparers asking for the ISB to simplify the preparation of the financial statements 
for certain eligible subsidiaries. So companies or subsidiaries that are eligible and that will elect to apply this new IFRS 19 standard would still apply the recognition, measurement, and presentation requirements in other IFRS accounting standards. So this standard impacts only the disclosures. And maybe shortly to describe who can apply this standard, it, it, this standard can be applied by an entity if it, if it is a subsidiary. It does not have public accountability, and it has an ultimate or intermediate parent that produces consolidated financial statements available for public use under full IFRS accounting standards. So in short, for subsidiaries that prepare full IFRS accounts for their group purposes and use those also for their individual reporting, this standard should bring a big operational relief in terms of the disclosures that need to be prepared at the individual subsidiary level. Thanks, Netta. And I guess one thing that interests me about that one, as well as full IFRS accounting standards, the ISB also issues IFRS for SME requirements. Is is this standard going to be somewhere in the middle? Are the disclosures that we're going to see in IFRS 19 somewhat similar to the disclosures you would see for SMEs in IFRS for SMEs? This is a great question, Laura. So subsidiaries applying the IFRS for SME standard that report to their parent applying IFRS accounting standards would need to maintain additional accounting records because of the recognition and measurement differences between the requirements in IFRS accounting standards and IFRSs for SMEs. So yes, somewhat, but still not the same. To develop IFRS 19, the ISB built on the work already done in developing the disclosures in the IFRS for SMEs, but it amended them so that they are better adapted to align with the full IFRS requirements such as recognition and measurement requirements. Thanks, Netta. And then ending on this one then with the same question I asked you for IFRS 18. So for IFRS 19, when are we expecting exactly to see this one come out and what will be the effective date? I think we're going to have a busy April this year because we expect IFRS 19 to be issued also in April. The effective date will be January 1, 2027, but as always, early application is permitted. Great. Thanks, Netta. Okay, then moving on then perhaps to some of our amendments. Uh, Marie, I know that this year we also have coming out, it's a project that's been going on for a while, some amendments to IFRS 9, our financial instrument standards, but it's not just relevant to banks. These are amendments that are relevant um, to everybody. So Marie, if I could ask you to give us an overview of what's going to be in these amendments. Thanks, Laura. So we're expecting sort of a package of amendments to IFRS 9, sort of my favorite standard, financial instruments, but it it does apply to everybody, uh, sort of a hodgepodge of different topics that are being addressed. And that's really sort of on the back end of the post-implementation review of IFRS 9. So there's a number of issues that came up and that are being addressed here as a package. So let me start with the first one. The first um, amendment is related to sustainability-linked loans. So what are these? It's quite a topical issue. So these are loans with interest rates that are linked to the borrower's sustainability targets. And what's the issue there? The issue is whether um, these type of loans actually meet uh, one of the key tests in IFRS line, which is the SPPI test, so solely payment of principal and interest. 
if that test is met, um, of course, the loan can be carried at amortized costs. So that's the key consideration. So that issue is really on the asset side. So that's an issue for the lender, um, so of our banking um, clients out there. But the amendments will also look at disclosures for these type of loans because there's variabilities associated with them. And so there's an information need about just the type of features and the nature of the adjustments as well. So that will cover both the lender and the borrower. So that's the the first key topic as part of the IFRS 9 amendments. The next one uh, is an interesting one. It's relevant to everybody. I'll refer to as electronic cash transfers. Um, So what are these? Those are just transfers that occur um, through an electronic payment system. So generally, frankly, when these occur within a reporting period, there's not much of an issue but when they cross over a reporting period, the question then it becomes, what is the accounting? For example, the buyer purchased some goods, they've initiated the payment, but the amount has not yet reached the counterparty. So it's sort of in transit. The question then is, what do I do with the payable and the receivable uh, when that transfer has been initiated but not yet completed? So what the IFRS 9 amendments will do is clarify that settlement data accounting applies um, to the due recognition of both the, the payable side and the receivable side. So in other words, you do the journal entries when the transfer is settled, not when it's initiated. Thanks, Marie. So on the electronic cash transfers, does that mean that all companies that so far might have had a policy to do the accounting when the transfer is initiated would need to change their policy to settlement date accounting as a result of these amendments? Interesting question, Laura. So I'll have to answer the the question in in two parts. So let me start with sort of the the seller, uh, the, the entity receiving the cash. So the answer to that question is yes. So if you have a receivable, you can only de-recognize that receivable when the transfer is complete, so when the cash is received. It's a little more interesting for the other side, so the buyer making the payment. So the amendments will um, introduce a policy choice that would allow entities to use trade data accounting when specific criteria are met. And one of those criteria is actually that the sending entity has no practical ability to cancel the payment. So if you will, the payment is going through the pipes, but there's no ability um, to cancel that payment once it's going through the pipes. Um, so that will require a little bit of analysis for companies that want to use um, that accounting policy choice. Thanks, Marie. So definitely something that's relevant for everyone, electronic cash transfers. Is there anything else you wanted to point out or highlight about this amendment that might be helpful for people to keep in mind? Yeah, sure. Um, the favorite question I get um, sitting in North America is what uh, what happens with checks? Does this policy choice or this amendment also cover checks? So the exception I just mentioned sort of from the, the buyer, so the entity making the payment is only for electronic cash transfers. So that does not that won't apply to checks. The other point I want to make is obviously there may be some changes needed to systems and processes for entities that apply trade data accounting today. Um, and the analysis may be more complicated. For example, if you operate in, in multiple jurisdictions or using different systems, because that ability to cancel the payment sort of varies depending on what system you're on. So it probably will require a little bit of analysis. Um, so again, planning, and, planning ahead is always good uh, when these amendments come out. And I guess then, ending on the same question I've been asking Netta, Marie, when are we expecting to see these IFRS 9 amendments come out? And also, when will those be effective? Yep. So we're expecting them to come out in Q2 uh, of 2024, so this year. 
Um, I think we're expecting an effective date of January 1st, 2026, uh, probably with an option to early apply sort of the SPPI amendments to sort of the sustainability loan uh, part uh, before the other amendments. So more to come on that. But yeah, sometime in in Q2 is um, when we're expecting those to be available. That's helpful and helpful to know that the separate pieces can potentially be applied separately, given they're, they're not necessarily connected. Yay. So with that then, the last sort of project I had on my list here was power purchase agreements. And Marie, I know that's a very favorite topic of yours right now. So if it's okay, I'll hand straight over for you to give an overview of that project. Yeah, thanks, Laura. So that's a very different project than the one I just mentioned. We're sort of at the very end for IFRS 9 for the amendments, and it sort of follows um, kind of, you know, the, the post-implementation review. Power purchase agreements is more of a, a topical issue. It's a relatively new project, but it's also fast moving. But it's still somewhat in an exploratory phase, and nothing is set in stone at this point. So it's very different sort of from the IFRS 9 amendment that are sort of getting close to the finish line and, and about ready to be published. So what's the issue with power purchase agreements? So again, um, in today's um, environment, it's very common for entities to actually enter into physical power purchase agreements with an electricity supplier where the energy source is wind or solar, and entities then commit to purchase a fixed portion um, of the output. Now, the main objective of entering into those contracts is to make sure entities have sufficient access to energy from those sustainable sources and also to lock in the price on the electricity needs. Now, the challenge from an accounting perspective is whether these type of arrangements then fall under IFRS 9 or not. And putting IFRS 16 aside, there's also some considerations from a leasing perspective. Um, but assuming we're sort of staying clear of the IFRS 16 considerations, then our next point of call will be IFRS 9. Now, we know that electricity is actively traded in many jurisdictions, many geographical areas, so the, the spot market for electricity is liquid. And so when that's the case, um, electricity is considered readily convertible to cash. And so when you look at IFRS 9, this would mean that the agreements could get scoped in to IFRS 9, but there's a big but uh, unless the own-use exception is met. So that's sort of a possible way out of nine um, if you're in because it's readily convertible to cash. Thanks, Marie. So what are the questions coming up in terms of how would the own-use exception apply in this type of case? I'm guessing that's the issue the ISB is looking to address. Yeah, spot on, Laura. It's a great question. And frankly, it's a tricky one. Um, at first blush, it seems very simple, right? What is the own-use exception? It just means you use what you buy, or in other words, you buy what you need. Now, that works well when the supply is predictable, and if there is any excess, it can be stored and then used later. Now, if you look at wind or solar, the supply is far more unpredictable, and so there's a high level of uncertainty over how much electricity will be delivered when. And this is further complicated by the fact that electro electricity sorry, is not economically storable at scale. So the buyer actually may have to sell some electricity it has received to the spot market when delivery exceeds the buyer's needs. So the key question is then, what do we do with these sales? Do they uh, violate sort of the own use guidance? So what the ISB is looking at to do is provide some application guidance on the extent to which these type of sales 
are permitted when assessing the own use exception. And the objective of the amendment really is to make sure that the own use exception continues to be fit for purpose, sort of considering these market developments in the renewable energy um, space. You know, it's always interesting to me because when IFRS 9 was written, uh, these transactions were not in the marketplace, right? So it's always hard to contemplate every single market development when when a standard is written. Um, and so that's part of the issue here is looking at these new transactions that occur in the marketplace, making sure the standards um, are actually future-proof and fit for purpose. The last point around that, uh, last but not least, always my favorite, um, is around disclosures. So it's always key to be transparent around these contracts. Some of them are yep. very long dated. And so um, having transparent disclosures around those um, is always a critical component. Definitely. That makes sense. Is there anything else, Marie, we should point out to people about this project? Any other aspects to it? Sure. Yeah, I couldn't be on a podcast with you talking about IFRS 9 without mentioning hedge accounting. So I have to put a plug in for hedge accounting. So the other piece of, of this project is looking at hedge accounting, particularly for what we call the virtual power purchase agreements. But some of the concepts will also be applicable to sort of the physically settled uh, contracts as well. Just a virtual power purchase agreement is accounted for as a derivative because it's a virtual agreement. So there's no physical delivery of electricity. So we just view it and treat it as a financially settled um, derivative. So for those contracts, achieving hedge accounting is quite tricky because there's variability in the cash flows of the hedged item is, is not only impacted by changes in price, but also by changes in the volume. So that makes the issue a little bit harder um, to wrestle to the ground. So the, the ISB is also looking at possible amendments um, to hedge accounting to sort of address the variability coming from the volume component of those contracts. But it's a bit of a tricky one, frankly, because, you know, as many of us who have been dealing with hedge accounting uh, for a while, we know that hedge accounting is a privilege, not a right. And so there's conditions to be met to be eligible uh, for such a privilege and uh, to get to hedge accounting. So the issues are also quite different depending on whether you look at the seller side or the purchaser side. So certainly more to come in that space, but some some interesting developments. Thanks, Marie. So you mentioned this one is at quite a different stage to the others in terms of the project timeline. Do you have any expectations in terms of what we might see timeline-wise this year? I have very high expectations because it's a very hot topic and I know there's a lot of interested parties, so I have high expectations for this, but... I don't. I only have a crystal ball, so you can't hold me to it. Um, but I'm thinking we could probably see an exposure draft at some point in Q2 of 2024. So very busy Q2 for us. Indeed. Okay, thank you. So moving on to the last element I wanted to talk to you guys about, we're also expecting quite a few consultations, exposure drafts coming out in 2024. Etta, can I ask you for a high level swing through what those are? Of course, Laura. Yes, we are actually expecting to see this March the exposure draft on business combinations, disclosures, goodwill impairment. That will propose amendments to actually two of my very favorite standards, IFRS 3, to improve information companies currently disclose about the performance of business combinations, as well as amendments to IS 36 for impairment, including amendments to the impairment test of cash generating units containing goodwill. So no, while we're not getting rid of the impairment tests, are we? 
but we expect some significant changes to the current practice with this ED. And on this note, Laura, I'm also very happy to share that we might see some special guests sharing insight on these topics later this year, so stay tuned. Also, other consultations we are expecting later in the year is clarifications relating to the application of equity method. For the ISB will amend IS-28 to include guidance on some of the application questions, and we expect the most relevant to be around the elimination of transactions between investors and associates or joint ventures. In addition, we are also expecting some targeted improvements to IS-37 for provisions. The ISB plans to make some much-needed clarifications on a key topic, such as the recognition criteria for provisions and also introduce requirements on how discount rates need to be calculated for long-term provisions. In addition to the two I just mentioned, we are also expecting some maintenance in IS-21 relating to hyperinflationary economies, which have become more common over the past years, and we expect these changes to actually provide entities some help in how to apply the guidance. And also, while the public consultation may not come in 2024, the ISB will be starting this year its post-implementation review of IFR 16 for leases. Maybe as a summary, I think this will be a relatively busy year ahead of us for many who are working with IFRS accounting standards. So back to you, Laura. Great. And Netta, I think that is probably a perfect place to leave this episode. So Marie, Netta, thank you so much for your insights on what's in store for a busy 2024. And thank you also to our listeners. To never miss an episode of IFRS Talks, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, happy accounting. This podcast has been brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers, LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitution for consultation with professional advisors.